0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 760th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson from Urban Farm U and my new magical farm in North Carolina. I hope you're well. I'm here with Zach Lokes. Hello, Zach.
1: Hey, how's it going, everyone?
0: It's nice to have you. Boy, do we have a lot to talk about besides the topic tonight. But the topic tonight is this month we will chat with our friend and author Zach Lokes about his tips and tricks for getting the most out of your garden. Zach Lokes grew up on a permaculture homestead in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Interesting side story. Your dad was one of my permaculture teachers in my first PDC in 1991. You remember that?
1: I remember that. I love yeah.
0: it. You I, don't remember it from back then, but you remember. No, the I, I remember them. from one of
1: our chats. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Working alongside his family, he was immersed in a permaculture design and started his own edible landscape company. He started an organic market garden in Ontario, Canada, serving over 300 community supported agriculture vegetable baskets for over a decade and is a three-time Agra award-winning grower. Congratulations. Zach is an innovator of edible ecosystem design, a unique system for organized biodiverse land management. Zach has also published three books, which we're going to talk about her in a little while, on food system design and is working on his fourth. Congratulations and welcome, Zach.
1: Thank you. They just keep popping into my brain. So I write it down.
0: I'll tell you, man, I have so much to say, and I just don't have the brain for writing it down.
1: Yeah, but you've got the gift of gab.
0: That is true. (laughs) That is true. So let's start tonight. Tips and tricks for getting the most out of your garden, especially let's go with what's going on in the world. And that's this whole heat stuff that's happening. Let's start with that When we're dealing with such extreme heat, what are some things that we can do to help mitigate that heat in our garden?
1: Yeah, good question. There's actually a lot that can be done. First of all, what comes to mind is that if you're following a food forest style gardening where you're integrating perennials and annuals, if you're using those kind of methods, then you're going to end up with Um, more partial shade, you'll end up with more evapotranspiration, overall cooling of the ambient air in your property. Mm. Um, And so that can be really beneficial. Certainly a sun-drenched garden has really high yield potential for annual vegetables. But when you calculate the other ecosystem benefits of a highly diversified perennial and annual yard, and you want to factor in the yield of both the fruits, berries, herbs, and the vegetables, you get higher yield, and one of those ecosystem services will be cooling, protecting, helping store moisture, which is all beneficial with these heat waves.
0: Yeah, exactly. I do garden consults virtually with people, Mm -hmm. and I did one with a lady yesterday in Las Vegas, and she was struggling with things cooking in her backyard that had gravel and concrete block walls in it. Yeah. And so this was just yesterday and we had a lot of conversations and I got an email today and she said, Greg, I've already started implementing some of the stuff, which in the low desert, what I suggest is heavy mulch, six to 18 inches of mulch. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Mulching is really important. With heat comes evaporation, comes loss of soil moisture. So having a soil that is Keeping that moisture in is really important. With that comes ways of adding moisture to the soil. Drip irrigation is a really great way of getting water to plants without losing a lot of water. Sprinklers are really a no-no in this kind of heat. Um,
0: Yes, I got it. Say why.
1: With the sprinklers? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the water is being dispersed in the air. So before it even hits the ground, it can already be transferred. Water has three different states. It can be a liquid, it can be a vapor, and it can be a solid ice. So it can go right back from liquid right back to vapor before it even gets to the ground. But also, a lot of water splash on the leaves in extreme heat isn't always great for plants. You can get a bit of a magnifying effect on the leaves. And really, at the end of the day, water is costly and you want to get it to the plants. Right.
0: One of the things we're experiencing here that I never experienced in Phoenix is that when we do water top down, so we're mm-hmm. using a, a water wand and we're watering the whole plant. We're getting mm-hmm. some blights that are hitting our tomatoes and potatoes. Yep. In that case, we just really want to water the ground as much as possible.
1: Yeah, for sure. The, all the blights on the early and the late blights are about soil splatter from that. So that's where you're right. That watering with drip irrigation is critical. Yeah.
0: yeah. And you said something you called food forest design. It's something that you do. Can you give us a sense of what that is and how that might make gardening easier Mm long-term?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I throw the word food forest out there because it's a popular term, but I specialize in edible ecosystem design because it clarifies the depth of understanding that we can gain from different types of ecosystems in natural areas that what we create in our yards need not necessarily be a forest it could also be a prairie or a woodland or a water meadow but essentially what happens is how do wild ecosystems function what is their form the shape of the plants the way the plants companion And how does that build potential into your landscape? And by choosing a certain ecosystem that you want to emulate or mimic, you can gain a lot of the force and power of that wild ecosystem, but using plants that you know and love. I was just at a conference in Erie, Pennsylvania. And so I was testing people about like halfway through the talk. And I said, okay, so I just used the word prairie again. So What do you think when I said prairie? Do you think I'm talking about the wild tall grass prairies that existed for thousands of years and grasses and bison? Exactly.
0: So That's what I'd
1: think. That's what I think too. But then at a certain point in the conversation in understanding about ecosystem design, you realize that it could be that you're talking about a wild native prairie, which by the way, has plenty of edible and useful plants that exist in it. But it could also be that you're talking about an ecosystem that's designed with the similar layering of plants as a prairie. A prairie landscape could be chives and bee balm and lemon balm and other mints, anise hyssop. It could have strawberries in it. It could have various other types of edible plants and medicinal plants and pollinator plants that are occurring in ecological layers photosynthetic strata that are essentially my head, I'm about 6'2", down to my toes. That's a prairie ecosystem. Wild native prairie, cultivar mimicry. And how do we do that? That's it, right? So it really comes down to understanding the layers. And I actually like to simplify these things because I think that when you look at a wild prairie, that it has a couple key things that we have to understand if we continue with the prairie example, one is that all the plants are site suitable. The plants are always suitable to exactly where they are, suitable to both the macro and the micro. And by this, I mean, the plants are suitable to the climate they're in. If you're planting in a certain climate, you might consider the hardiness zone. You know for sure that the plants are gonna be hardy, that's why they're there but they're also suitable to the micro, which can include literally the moisture in the micro topography. You know, in prairies, you'll see like in lower dipped areas, you'll have entirely different plants that exist than what's four or five feet over in a bit of a rise. So one of the first things in creating an ecosystem mimicry is really understanding your yard and understanding its environment, both at that macro scale, what's your climate, what's your hardiness zone, and understanding at the micro, what soil do you have, what's the moisture like in different pockets, different spots throughout your yard, and then finding the right plants. And so then you ask yourself, well, what are those plants I'm generally looking for? If your mimicry is a prairie, you're looking for those herbs, those perennials that are again, my height down to my toes.
0: Nice. One of the things that I did in Phoenix when I lived there, I lived in Phoenix for 54 years and I lived at the same home for 32 years. And I got this term from you in a Mm -hmm. conversation maybe two years ago. It's called old growth food forest. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: And what I did over the course of 30 years at the urban farm is I planted open pollinated seeds that came back year after year, and created an incredibly biodiverse space where there was always things to eat. Like, And I'm not talking about one or two things. I'm talking about dozens of things to eat. And that's really what we're talking about, is how do we build an old-growth food forest so that all you have to do is harvest? And I think that was Bill Mollison's intent from the beginning in the 70s, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think if we're thinking about how do you get more from your garden, I guess I would pose the question, how do you put in less to get more and to get more in a more resilient fashion? Mm. How do You go out into your yard next year and without investing a lot in the course of the spring and even maybe with the capricious nature that we have, maybe it's a bit of a drought or something and you're still getting good yield. So with ecosystem design, it's not always about how much work you can put in guaranteed every year. I'm going to always work my soil and plant my vegetables and make sure to keep it really well weeded. Sometimes it's like, how much can I get away with not doing?
0: (laughs) I know everyone loves that. Exactly. I've called myself a lazy gardener for for decades. Yeah. And it's not (laughs) that I didn't put a lot of work in over time if you're thinking through the process of putting a landscape in that will self-manage, then it becomes just go out and harvest.
1: That's it. That's it. I've been on the road for six months. I have not been home for more than 16, 17 days per month. I haven't been more. So almost half the month I've been gone for six months. Wow! And I can still go out into my edible ecosystems along my laneway And I was eating apples and raspberries and asparagus. And I've got pears that are ripening. The chums are are, looking juicy. There was cherries, like so much growing. And did I do anything with them this year? Nothing. I haven't done anything. I haven't done a single thing. And part of that is the ruthlessness of nature. Not everything will do well. And those that don't survive are not the fittest. And so Darwin would roll over in his grave if he thought that we were going to go and nurture and baby that poor little unfit pear tree that really is not site suitable because right. ecosystem design says it better be site suitable. And if it's not doing well, it certainly isn't.
0: You know? Yeah. In Phoenix, I used to give a tree three years, and if it wasn't thriving, I'm starting to produce fruit. It was gone. There we go. I so we have two different distinct things we're talking about here. We've got the annuals and the perennials, and I guess we could call biannuals as well. But let's talk about the difference between them.
1: And I always think about mixing them together, but essentially the annual is the vegetable and it's a weed. It's the kind of organism that you would classify as coming into a disturbance environment. Like when the glaciers left North America and all these weeds came in and then came the forest land. When I think annuals, I think, okay, I've got to work the soil a little bit and baby it along. Every year I'm doing that. But also annuals can self-seed and you can get biannuals where you're allowing them to follow through with their life cycle. And in some cases, that is exactly what's necessary. And in other cases, it might show an opportunity for instance, I had a patch of self-perpetuating rye and kale. And for about four years, it just kept growing and seeding and growing and seeding. And I had earlier kale than I could have ever had by coming in and working my soil in the spring, and planting little kale transplants, because it just kept growing and perpetuating. And the rye grew and created a mulch and also had an allelopathic effect to suppress other weeds, but it didn't suppress the kale. So- Mm -hmm that's an example of using your annuals in an ecosystem model. And then your perennial would be your raspberry or your fruit tree or anything that has that long-term growth, that woody material in the cane and in the trunk of the tree. They're important too. And you can have both. You can have a vegetable garden in the middle of your yard and you can line your property edges with fruit and berries.
0: Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of fruit trees varies because you plant them once and you get food for decades.
1: That's it. Yeah. you know, Yeah. Then, like why not and- I mean, you put more work up front. So that would be the thing I would add is to that conversation, yep. like annual versus perennial. So you invest a little more initially with perennials, but then you get dividends for a long time.
0: Yeah. I had two citrus trees in the ground at the urban farm in Phoenix, Arizona that were over a hundred years old when I left and they were still heartily I producing. I love that.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah you're, you were in a nice little spot there. Even yeah. where I grew up in Santa Fe, we're not as cozy warm as you guys. We're still in the mountains, man.
0: Yeah.
1: But there's you know, stuff, stuff that grow there. I just did an urban foraging about a month ago in Santa Fe of a mulberry tree hanging over a road. And it was just, it was loaded, loaded yep. with mulberries.
0: Yeah. Mulberries are like that. In fact, I planted three different varieties of mulberries here about a month ago. Nice. Nice. I, yeah. Illinois. Yep. Trader. I got a couple couple of Illinois and then from Phoenix. So we do Pakistani mulberries and dwarf black mulberries. They do really well there. And I'm nice. still doing every year. I still go back in January to Phoenix and we do our fruit tree education program all year round. And then People can buy fruit trees from us. So I go back to Phoenix in January to basically be there when people are picking up their fruit trees. And so I shipped back three Pakistani mulberries and a dwarf black mulberry. So I put them in the ground. We'll see how they do. They're totally experimental.
1: That's the best.
0: But the right, the Pakistanis are three inches long and the dwarf blacks are about the size of a dime. And they're just amazing. So we'll see how they do.
1: Always plant trees with the intention of killing some.
0: When you're experimenting. <laughs> for my peeps in Phoenix, we've done the experimenting for them. And if, if they do what we ask them to do, then in three years, they'll be getting fruit, which is nice. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. We've so- got mulberries growing now in, in Winnipeg. It's a zone three. and Wow. Yeah. So it's, they're the progeny of a tree that was found in the Dakotas. And from one tree, this tough bugger mother tree, they've created this new variety that is, is really hardy. So we've been pushing it further and further north. We're playing with it in zone five and four, and now we're playing within zone three.
0: Wow. And it's doing okay.
1: Yeah. 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 And we're propagating nice. its own now. We're going to share it out into the community and stuff.
0: Good. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things I did with figs and mulberries when I did the cuttings on them. So I also brought some figs back with me Mm -hmm. and I had to prune them down to get them in the box to ship them here. And so Mm -hmm. I took those prunings and I stuck them in the box. And when they got here, I rooted some of them out and I got a couple of figs. And interestingly enough, I got a bunch of the Pakistani mulberries that I got them to root out. Mm -hmm. We'll see how they do. Very cool. Yeah. Let's talk about, in your world, I wonder what the answer to this question is. In my world, there's seven layers to a food forest, starting at ground or below ground and then going up. Can we talk through those?
1: Yeah, depending on where, yeah, seven layers, right, for a food forest. And then it depends on what you qualify as a layer, right? So I... Mm -hmm in some respects i would just keep counting and differentiate even more and even more but that's because i'm just like a ridiculous ecosystem design nerd it's to the point where people are worried about me no i'm just kidding (laughs) but at the same time i also like to say there's just three layers so it's because in a way good design is super simple so yes So here's the seven layers. People will talk about overstory trees and they'll talk about a fruit tree layer. And then they might talk about a a bush layer. And then you could talk about a ground cover layer and an herb layer, right? And then people might talk about like an annual vegetable layer, right? Mm -hmm. A biannual layer and maybe a vine layer. And I'm already over because then I would throw a shrub layer, which I would differentiate a shrub from a fruit tree or from a bush so I would say that a raspberry is one type of layer and a hazelnut's another type of layer or an elderberry i would throw in there, which, which, cause they're just so much bigger than a raspberry or a current, but yeah. they're not a tree because they have different habit. So then I start differentiating the layers, not just by height, but by habit. And then I was, okay, you might have a dwarf fruit tree and you might have a full root standard fruit tree, which still is not the same thing as planting a maple right. or oak. And then what about soil life? And fungi, aren't they a layer? Isn't the soil <laughs> ecosystem? The soil ecosystem is a whole bunch of layers, but if they're that all be, layers, yeah. so you could just keep going. But at the end, then I what I like to think of is you have big plants, medium plants, and small plants. And then sometimes I like to say, and you have really small plants. And I just keep it at that because when I do ecosystem design, and this is where ecosystem design really jumps away from the philosophy of permaculture, is it's a systematic diverse land management system, where it's all specified out exactly how we organize landscapes. And it's all about patterning of different sizes of plants based on their suitability to your landscape. So sometimes I like to say, okay, along my edible driveway, for instance, I have a very small plant, like a ground cover, and then I'll go to an herb and then a ground cover, and then I'll jump up to a bush, and I'll go back down to a ground cover, and then an herb, and then a ground cover, and then a fruit tree. And I'll go, okay, now it's ground cover, herb, ground cover, bush, ground cover, herb, ground cover, fruit tree, ground cover, herb, ground cover, bush, ground cover, herb, ground cover, ground cover, bush, ground cover, herb, ground cover, fruit tree. And that becomes the pattern. But then you can play jazz. It's almost more musical than anything. Because I was
0: dancing here.
1: Yeah, you were. You knew it. And then you like get funky with it, and you start to specify even more design details. Because then you're like. I have a, an integrated pest management herb and I have a soil building ground cover and then I have a nitrogen fixing herb and then I have a berry bush and then maybe you switch it up and you say, oh, and my fruit trees are two pits for pollination and then I have two pums for pollination, but less disease sharing and you just mix it up. But at the end of the day, if you look at the design that you're making, you could just make tiny dots and medium dots and large dots on your paper in a pattern, and then you could specify all of the different plants based on what they are. And if you're doing a prairie mimicry, then those largest dots are sunflowers. And if you're doing a woodland mimicry, those largest dots are trees, yeah. full-size trees, right? Big so trees. Yeah, so by going down to just like three layers, in a way, i become a better designer because I just start to think of things as more <laughs> and more similar Whereas before, I used to try to break it down as much as possible. And I'm like, ah, there's 29 layers, I'm telling you. I was going
0: to say, there was about 27 in there. (laughs) I have a little bit of exciting news, but let's start with the book you wrote about this. What's the book?
1: Yeah, so the book, The Edible Ecosystem Solution, is about ecosystem design and how to create small, modular edible landscapes with starting with just five feet by five feet, and then how to Grow from there into your yard and into your community.
0: Yes. And it's an amazing book. So much so that when it was time for you to do the Audible version of it, who did that?
1: It's a really great guy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I got so incredibly lucky. I read the book for Audible. So if you go to Audible and buy the Audible version of it, it's me. Yeah.
1: yeah, just go to Audible and type in either Zach Lokes or Edible Ecosystem Solution, it'll come up. And you did a great job. I was chatting beforehand a little bit with you and saying how much I was able to assimilate it. Because, But really, like, as someone who writes, it's mm-hmm. hard for me to read my own book and see. I'm like, is this book good? I don't know. Yeah. Because I just started editing and stuff. But I did one of, one of my trips on book tour or something, I started listening to it on audible. And I was like, Oh, this is great. And your voice was great. And it was, and it was really clear. And I was, I enjoyed the book. I was like, this is a good book.
0: It's a good book. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> but I didn't know until I heard it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And one of the cool things about it is that it, the audible version comes with PDFs to, Yeah, to show people how to actually make this happen. Mary Lynn wants to know the name of the book again.
1: The edible ecosystem solution. And it's referring to both the fact that we're creating landscapes that are edible and we're using ecosystems, wild ecosystems, to help inform the design. And then solution refers to a lot of the issues that we're having in our communities and in our culture, food insecurity, climate change, urban heat island effect, how we can solve these by creating small but mighty Edible ecosystem landscapes.
0: Well, and I am a huge proponent. I've said this for years that the place with a capital T to solve our global food problem is right where we're living. Yes, sir. And one of the things that I experienced at the urban farm, and one of the things I'm starting to build here in North Carolina, is a, an ecosystem where you just go out and graze. Yeah. Is it yeah. easy?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. We're in the same track. I If I said I spent almost all my time thinking about this, I literally spent almost all my time thinking about this. I, I really envision the world as just being this wild, edible, diverse, beautiful, interactive cornucopia. <laughs> I'm like, I'm fully on board with what you're saying. Like That's the way to live. You just walk out and you graze like you're a bison.
0: Eileen says, anybody in the Phoenix area read this book and... Are you trying to use this information? Is it worth the price for Phoenix growers? Eileen, I lived in Phoenix for 54 years. I vetted this book before I read it for Audible. It's an incredible book. Really, no matter where you live, I'm going to throw this to you as a question. Yeah, it, yeah. it works, right?
1: Yeah, I would say Eileen, obviously I'm the author, but, and I'm working on my fourth book right now, but this book in particular is a really great book. It really is a great book. It's And part of why it is amazing is because it's really about finding what works anywhere by anyone. And I really wrote it for that. I wanted to write a universal book. And part of that came from when I wrote my first book, The Permaculture Market Garden, because I was a commercial organic market farmer for many years. I traveled and taught in places like South Africa, and I was in Europe, and I remember... Thinking, OK, how do people apply all this? There might be differences in climate and language, too, because there's 11 official languages in South Africa. And so I made the book about understanding how to apply natural system design, ecosystem design, because ecosystems are all about being effective exactly where they are. If you understand what an ecosystem is, and the first quarter of the book is about that. That's what it's about, understanding the science of the ecosystem. Because then you could be in the Yukon, where I have applied these methods and its suitability to that. Or you could be in the Southwest, uh, where I grew up and I've applied these methods. Or you could be in the Northeast, where I currently farm, and you can apply these same methods. And all the principles are all the same, because the ecosystem is following the same natural design principles, every single square foot of earth. It's the same natural design principles that are applied. And that's why we need to grow like ecosystems because we live in an ecosystem reality, which is called earth.
0: This is really what permaculture is. I like to call permaculture, the art and science of working with nature. How do we work in the flow? And you need to look to see what works in your area. And I highly suggest that you walk down the street walk the neighborhoods where you're at, observe Mm -hmm. what's going on in those spaces and start to mimic what works. Right. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and talking about walking that, that reminds me it's something I'm doing right now, which really builds off the edible ecosystem solution book. And the concept is I'm actually going on long cross city walks. I call it walk across where, where, and uh, I do that to look at green spaces and, and show all the spaces that are underutilized in cities and to visit all the great projects that exist in, in areas so people can see that they're not alone in wanting to recreate a beautiful habitat around themselves. There's people doing amazing work all over the place. You can check that out on YouTube or something. And then and walk. I, I would actually say, yeah, walk across your neighborhoods, check out what your neighbors are doing, make contacts hey, you know, what fruit grows in your yard? Because that's the catalyst that reduces the amount of energy needed to succeed in creating great gardens in our homes is learning from each other and understanding our surroundings and our natural systems and other great gardeners. Well,
0: and it's amazing what happens when you slow down, get on a bike, walk your area, the different things that you see When we're traveling at 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, we're missing so much.
1: I know. You know, what's so funny is that when, like, I never went anywhere when I was farming. Mm -hmm. And when I wrote my first book, I started traveling everywhere by plane. And then I was like, I'm missing too much. I want to see all the land in between. So then I started driving to all the conferences and things where I would do for work or consults. I'd only drive so I could see it. And then I was like, I'm still going too fast. So now I'm doing these walks and I'm like, this is the perfect pace. The one I did in Winnipeg was 40 kilometers in 15 hours. And I learned so much by going at that pace and that distance. It blew my mind. Now, are
0: you videotaping or recording yeah. this in any way? Okay. Yeah,
1: I post live to, to Instagram, Zach Lopes uh-huh. on Instagram. And then I'm also piecing together a bunch of videos, which I'm going to be launching on YouTube about the walks. And I just, I meet people. I can give a little anecdote from a walk I did in, in Erie, Pennsylvania last week. Because it Please. was, okay, it was really cool. It was really cool. You guys will love this. I decided I would walk the downtown area. So I set my goal on about seven kilometer walk. And as I was walking, I met up with some folks in a park, in a city park, just hanging out and enjoying the park on the weekend. And they started to talk about this one guy who was like, well, I was born in 1945. And before there used to be fruit in all these yards. And there was so much fruit. And I was like, oh, tell me more. And then this lady chimed in. She's like, yeah. when there's this one great old cherry tree that there used to be. And I don't know if it was still there, but it was so glorious. And so I'm like, ooh, I'm like, where was where? it? Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, where was it? She's like, she's. And so I'm like, generally heading off, and then she's like, oh, walnut and eighth. And I'm like, okay. So all of a sudden, my entire trip, and I do these things very impromptu. I didn't actually know I was walking Erie, Pennsylvania until I decided to do it an hour before. And I was like, okay, now this is where I'm going. So I start yeah. walking there and I continue to do my surveying and the stuff that I do. And then as I get in that area, I'm still looking around and I start chatting with these two other guys that are coming back from work or something. And then they're like, there is this neighborhood where there used to be a lot of fruit back in the day. And they're like, it's, and then they're like, oh heck, he's like, let's go. And so these two guys just take me along and we're like cruising through this neighborhood. And then we take like this left and we go over here. And then all of a sudden we come to this area and he's like, yeah, there used to be lots of plums in here and stuff. And they're like, okay, we got to get back to work. So I'm starting to move around in the neighborhood and I see like where some trees are gone now, but there's still some big old trees And there's one really pretty decent, glorious cherry tree, but it, but it just has one cherry on it. But I keep wandering and I end up finding that there are some apples and some different things. And so now I'm like trying the different apples and checking them out and I find one that's ripe. And so I'm eating it. And now an even younger person comes along. So if originally I was talking to somebody who was born in, born in 45, and then these two, they, maybe they were in their forties or something. And now this girl comes along and she must be Maybe 18 or something like that. And she sees me eating this apple and she immediately comes over and is like, Is that edible? And I'm like, Yeah. She's like, What, what is this? And I'm like, An apple. And she's like, Wow. And so she starts eating this apple and we're just chatting and talking about apples. And then she says, Wait, there's this other plant over here. And I've been wondering about it and whether you eat it. And I was like, Let's go. So she takes me around the corner. We keep cruising and we end up cruising up and there is this glorious cherry tree wow and she's like are these edible cuz we're told maybe red fruits are poisonous or things and i'm like yeah yeah no this is a cherry tree now let's just find out if it's a semi sweet or a sweet or and so we start eating it and talking and she's oh my gosh i'm going to tell my family and my neighbors and i'm like yeah spread the knowledge about this cherry tree and what struck me later after i finished this walk is how the memory of the early generations of this community brought me to a place where like that generation that's more my age were able to then lead me even closer. Yeah. And then I ended up interacting with this young generation that was constantly curious about these fruits, but didn't actually have the mentorship and the knowledge. And that that connection of these different generations leading me to this just blew it's me huge. away. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. So. This is what you get when you walk around exploring your communities with the eye for food. Just these really interesting experiences.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you can do, for those of you in the desert, you can do the same thing in the desert. There is a textbook that's 300 pages about Sonoran Desert edibles. That's the Sonoran Desert is in the low desert of Arizona. And there are literally thousands of things that you can eat there. So you can do this anywhere.
1: Absolutely, yeah. cactus is delicious, right? The fruits yeah. and the flesh—you well, just have to uh, know how to clean it up.
0: <laughs> yeah. Have you ever eaten Saguaro fruit?
1: I haven't, but but prickly pear in New Mexico is what we would. That would oh. be our
0: go-to. Oh my gosh! So I grew up with prickly pear. My mom used to harvest prickly pear on the way back from our cabin up north in the seventies. We'd pick them and make <laughs> prickly pear yada yada, right? Yeah. So I get here to Asheville last April yeah and our drive from here into town to the go to the grocery store the farmer's market and stuff goes by a prickly pear (laughs) and given that I grew up in the desert (laughs) that's one of the first things I know what that is yeah I don't know what most of this stuff is behind me (laughs) but I know what that is
1: you're like that looks good everyone else don't eat that (laughs) yeah
0: so (laughs) I watched it and this is our main way into town. So we drive by it a couple of times a week. And I watched it over this course of the last summer. And it actually made prickly pears.
1: I love it. And it's they so
0: actually cute. ripen.
1: That's the thing. Is like a yard full of prickly pear is a garden in some climates. That's the mind ship we're talking yeah. about, right? Yeah. That's a yeah. low maintenance edible garden. You can eat the fruit too, the tunas. Right, right? exactly. And,
0: and we got... 17 degrees and snow this past winter. Yeah. And the thing woke up. And 2 months ago, I finally every time I drive by, I'm looking for somebody out front. I finally drive by and there's a guy standing out front working doing something in the front yard. I pull over. I yeah. said, "Hey, do you mind if I take a couple of those prickly pear pads with me?" Yeah. And they got these gnarly thorns on them. But I ventured past that. I think I had some gloves in the car or something. And I tore off a couple of the pads, just separated them from the plant. I brought them home. I put them in a small pot with nice soil. And I fertilized it a little bit. And wouldn't you know, one of the pads has three prickly pears on it. That's awesome. It actually bloomed and made a prickly pear. And the other one, the pad went from four inches diameter to 12 inches diameter. It's like they're growing and I just stuck them in the ground.
1: You know, anything that grows when you just stick it in the ground is worth it. That's the, I love it. You were talking about your elderberry patch too, right? And like those, again, they propagate so easily. Their, their nature is to propagate just by sticking a stick in the ground.
0: Literally. That's what I did. I bought a hundred sticks, two different varieties. I got, I got Bob Gordon and Adams elderberry, 50 of each. Mm -hmm. And the guy that the person that I got the first set of them from, he just said, just stick them in the ground. I'm going to do a little better than that. I put some rooting hormone on them and stuck them in four by four by nine pots with some nice soil in it. I ended up with 96 rooted elderberry plants, three feet tall Love it in three months. It wow. Action.
1: Great, great plants like that, right? They just, I do with black raspberries, I just pull the canes down, drop some hay on it or anything just to hold the tips down. And then they root from the tip right in. And then you get a really easy, clean plant. It's just like rooted into the mulch. So then yep. you just snip it with your pruning shears and then it just pulls, the roots pull right out of the mulch. And so then I'll have a few hundred of these, you know, really nice rooted black raspberry. Mm-hmm. And then I just- them or provide them to job sites or whatever.
0: Grapes will do the same thing.
1: Yep. Grapes yep, will do the same one. thing. Yep. They're just asking for it. And that's part of understanding nature is like really looking at the way that they propagate themselves and allow them to do their own work. Yeah, Yeah,
0: exactly. That's what really watching nature and I call it permaculture. Just watch and see what happens in your space. I've said this for years, spend at least a year on a property before you make any changes. And this has been a glorious year for me in seeing that if I would have put my greenhouse in a year ago when we arrived like we wanted to, it would have been in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. If we'd have put our garden in a year ago, it would have been in the wrong place. Yep. If we would have put our chicken coop in, it would have been in the wrong place.
1: Yeah, that period of observation is so critical. I followed all those permaculture principles when I started my homestead from scratch, I don't know, maybe 18 years ago or something. and. I, I just, I took my time. The first thing I did was I just went along my ridgeline and planted some sugar maples. And then I got a sense of where I wanted to put a road. And the longer you wait, then the more you understand. For instance, oh, where's the snow drift? And then you plan your windbreaks in your right. snow. Fences. Or where is the where's the garden wet in the spring? Where is it dry in the spring? Where is mm-hmm. it still wet later in the summer? Where the places where it, it holds moisture later... Maybe that's where you put later crops that love that moisture, like melons that dry out really early are great places to get in early and plant your spinach and your peas. So you learn a lot by waiting and observing. Decision delayed is decision better made, my dad used to
0: say. (laughs) There you go. Absolutely. D Simmons has an interesting question. They said, zone nine here in South Houston, every day over 100 degrees. The garden is fried. What can I do?
1: Yeah, everything's just completely fried. First of all, I would say it sounds maybe you can comment back, but it sounds like your garden might be a a bit of a write off when you say the word fried. Can you provide us a little more detail? Do you mean like it's fried and it's having a hard time growing or is your garden really like fried and dead at this point? Because sometimes I think the best garden, if we're limited for time or resources, or if something problematic has happened is just to allow it to grow as a cover crop and start to improve and heal the soil for a better garden next year. So going into your garden and just dispersing a bunch of cover crop seed And then allowing that garden debris to nurture, to nurse, we say, to nurse that seed to germinate in its shade and its kind of ruined canopy so that it grows up and can have a nice cover crop going through your fall and into your winter. Because a lot of why our gardens are not able to handle this kind of extreme heat and stuff is because they actually don't have the moisture, the water carrying capacity uh, of our soils. And we need to actually increase what's called micro pore spaces in the soil. There's two types of pore spaces, macro pore spaces, which hold air, and they fill with water temporarily when it rains. And then the water drains out of them and they refill with air. And you need those for mm-hmm. drainage and for holding air for aerobic organisms and decomposition and things like that. But then the micropores are really small and they hold water even after free drainage has finished from the soil and plants are able to absorb that water. And in that water is nutrients and water solution. So you, we all have to constantly be rebuilding the aggregation of our soil to enhance micro pore space. And the best way to do that is integrating cover crops, creating raised beds that don't get compacted so the pore space stay once you've built them, and making sure to have cover all through the season as much as possible. So having your garden be in cover crop or cover crop or crop, but very rarely ever having it completely bare.
0: Yeah, you don't ever want to have it
1: bare. No. So that's my thought there is that maybe
0: make some lemonade from your lemons. Exactly. Donald says, how do raised beds and large pots fit into this? We are doing raised beds in large and small pots. We actually have some plants in our garden area here, Donald, that are three-inch diameter pots, just really small pots that we're growing things in. If the soil is in them really good and they stay hydrated, they do great.
1: It's all about having water too, right? If you don't have water as a resource or you prefer not to use it, then you have to plant a xeriscape. You have to plant plants that don't require water. If you're planting plants that require water, then you need to water them or they won't thrive. So if you're in really hot areas like Texas and Southern New Mexico and Arizona and Southern California and Nevada and places like that are hot and dry, you have to understand the nature of your plants 100%. Are these plants that can grow with minimal water or are these plants that require that water in which case they'll love that heat if you give them that water. So you have to ask yourself your resources. Do you have, are you paying for city water? Do you have water catchment off
0: your roof? Yeah. In the low desert, when I lived in Phoenix, we basically gave up on our pots in the summertime. It's just yeah. growing yeah. things in pots through the heat. Good luck with that.
1: Yeah. Cause they're, they've got a lot of surface area for water loss. Yeah. That's it. But depending what you're growing in it too, but yeah. Yeah. I would say in-ground growing is better. And when I say raised beds, like I create perma beds and they're a very specific type of raised bed. First of all, they're earthen beds. They're made by raising the earth. As mm-hmm. a bed. There's no wood, there's no rocks, there's no metal. It's a raised earthen bed. It's a 12-inch path. And then it raises up six to eight to 12 inches. And then it's a 32-inch bed top. And then it goes down into a 12-inch path. And that has a lot more connection to the soil, but the raised nature allows better drainage in the spring, but it also holds more water because even if you walk on the path here, there's no compaction in the bed up here. Whereas if you're growing ground, even walking here, even if this is a no walk zone, the compaction impact is still felt into the center underneath because that's how compaction radiates into the ground is it gets wider and deeper in terms of its effect.
0: When one of the things they do in Tucson, I've seen, is they do lowered beds. Mm-hmm. So what yep. they do is they dig a trench that's three, three and a half feet wide and 18 inches deep. And then sometimes they'd fill it with woody mulch and let the soil develop over time or just put really good soil in it. So mm-hmm. that then the those lowered beds become catchment areas for water.
1: Yeah, that's cool. That's the like the waffle bed style, right? They can be long, but you also make two foot squares, sunken squares with raised ridges. And those can be really cool for developing edible ecosystem prairies because you can broadcast the seed into those and then mulch over top. And then they'll hold water and allow it to come in. Yeah. But not as easy for access as the path-based system where you have regular paths.
0: And as long as the beds are less than four feet wide, uh, but you can reach in two feet, but reaching in two and a half or three feet, if you got a five yes. or six foot bed, it's hard. Meredith yes. says when you do a food forest in a small space, you're giving up the opportunity to plant sun loving plants. Is that accurate?
1: It depends on. So a lot of what I think about these days is what I call ecosystem ratios. So if you have a larger yard or a small property, maybe you have an acre, maybe you have three acres, maybe you have a half acre. So the question is, what is the density of large plants versus small plants? Because that's your ratio. And if you want to maintain sun-drenched spaces for really heavy yields of annual vegetables, you will certainly put far fewer large trees or medium trees in there. And maybe you would focus on a different type of ecosystem, such as an edible medicinal prairie ecosystem, an annual vegetable ecosystem, Uh, a berry meadow ecosystem rather than a forest ecosystem, which is dark and dense with plants or a woodland, which has some sun-drenched space, but also has a lot of larger fruit trees. So you have to choose your ratio. So if you have a small yard, you might only want a few fruit trees, or you might want to create a sun trap, which is an old permaculture you know concept of allowing the sun to come in and you layer it so your vegetables are here and then you'll have your berries and then your fruit and then you'll have your bigger trees at the back so mm-hmm. everything is getting access to the sun so based on the size of your yard and your access to sunlight and what types of food plants you want to grow you'll decide on your ecosystem ratio trees versus vegetables
0: Great questions, Meredith. She okay. also says, are critters welcome or are they pests? That's a that's an it
1: depends, right? In some places I work on the strategy of abundance. Plant lots so everybody gets a bite. Yeah. In other cases, you exclude them, but you got to play it by ear because i I like where I am right now in Ontario, there's a bit of deer pressure, but there's not a lot. But a project I have in the suburbs of Winnipeg, there's so many deer that you fence your food forest, period. Because yeah everything will be gone. Unfortunately, we've eliminated a lot of top predators because we decided we were literally the top dog. And all the herbivores are like, woo, we love this. Soybeans everywhere and endless grass and trash. And so populations of all those things are really high. So I, as a market gardener, you know, I'm all about getting every every bit of my yield. As a permaculturalist, I'm in the, oh, plant in abundance and share. And so I probably fall somewhere in between now. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Tell us about your books.
1: I wrote The Permaculture Market Garden, and that's a great book for folks that either are starting a homestead property from scratch um, and might be interested in even making it into a commercial market garden. And so it's all about commercially viable homestead and micro farming, small farming. And the Edible Ecosystem Solution, which is all about small modular perennial edible landscapes.
0: It's a great book, by the way, I read it. Literally, (laughs) I read it out loud.
1: It's a good (laughs) one. And I I just published the Two Wheel Tractor Handbook. And this is for folks that are either in larger properties or interested in becoming edible landscapers themselves. Because it talks about the most effective equipment scale for managing properties that are between, say, you know, a half an acre to three to 12 acres for food forests, for gardens, for micro farming. But also this is the equipment that I use to create edible landscapes because I come and do custom installation of, say, quarter acre, half acre food forests. So it's a really powerful type of equipment. And so there's that as well. So, yeah,
0: Yeah. Nice, nice. Thank you, Zach. Spell your last name for us so that people know it.
1: Yeah, for sure. So Zach Lokes, so Z-A-C-H, and my last name is L-O-E-K-S. And you can learn everything that, that I'm doing at just Z A C H, L O E K S. Z-A-C-H-L-O-E-K-S.com. Perfect.
0: Thank you for this, Zach. I so appreciate it. And I love... Playing and working with you. I and I love what you do in the world. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure as always. You and bet. I look forward yeah. to hearing about your adventures in your new farm as it oh evolves. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I will.
0: Yeah. I've got some videos coming. So yeah.
1: I'm going to pop in. I'm going to I'm going to walk across your area probably soon and I'll pop in. That's what's going Oh my be. God.
0: So <laughs> if you're doing if you're doing that, you should let me know. But I'll if, go walk with you.
1: It's now officially a plan <laughs> All right, cool. Prompted these are. So
0: anyways, pleasure chatting. Thanks, everybody. Bye right back at gotcha. Thanks. Talk to you later. Ciao. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org.